Okay, good afternoon and welcome to everyone. We're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick up here in chapter 8 with the new material beginning at 22, verse 22 if I'm not mistaken. We've seen Jesus interaction with uh, the Gentiles and as a major theme, and that there are individual Gentiles who exhibit profound faith in him, even while his disciples don't yet quite get it, or maybe as we'll see today, get it fitfully, uh, right one minute and wrong the next. But we also have the themes of Jesus healing a deaf man and a blind man, and doing so in intrusive ways, ways involving his fingers and spit and this kind of thing. And we talked at length last week about the analogy, or really maybe even the blending together of the spiritual realities of healing, uh, spiritual deafness and muteness, and spiritual sight. And whereas the Deafness and muteness that is spiritual can be healed instantaneously. That is, God gives us ears to hear. And as we receive ears to hear, faith in the heart, then we receive a mouth to speak and to proclaim the truth of his word. The healing of spiritual sight, by way of analogy, takes place through process. So we see a healing of the man's physical sight where Jesus tries once and only gets it half right. No, that's not, of course, what happens. Jesus heals the man, but his vision isn't yet complete. He sees, this is all uh, verse 24 of chapter 8. So, wait a minute, do I have that right? Yeah, so I guess we're at 27. That's the new material today. So he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees. All right, and Jesus laid hands on his eyes again, and he opened them, and he saw clearly. So that idea of a healing via some process is also here. So these are all the themes woven together in very uh, general sense that we covered last week. So to correct myself, we'll pick up at verse 27, right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so the geographical marker in verse 27 is Caesarea Philippi. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, which is, uh, in your study note, northernmost Galilean city Jesus visited 25 miles north of Bethsaida in the largely Gentile region. So this in some ways wraps up but continues that theme of Jesus' mission to the Gentiles on the fringes of uh, that society and on the fringes of what God's people consider to be their land there. So, on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So, that's an obviously straightforward question. And they told him, John the Baptist who, of course, if you recall, I know it's hard to study the Bible in such a protracted, spread-out manner. It's almost easier to just read it all at once. You'd know right away. But John the Baptist, of course, is deceased by now. So how on earth are some calling him or saying that he is John the Baptist? Any ideas? Do you remember? And why they call him John the Baptist? Why do they think he's John the Baptist? Do you remember? The scriptures do tell us. It's not a... It's not an opinion question. The scriptures do tell us. Do you remember? Yeah, exactly. This is all the source of Herod's paranoid delusion that uh, John the Baptist, he knew he shouldn't have killed him. 
John the Baptist can be raised up and come get him. And this spreads through the hierarchy and spreads down to the people. So there's a chunk of people who think that Jesus is John the Baptist, come back from the dead to ultimately get Herod. All right, that's one answer. What's, the, what's another one given here? One of the prophets. Yeah, so that's another answer given. Uh, Jeremiah frequently was associated with Jesus due to the nature of their ministries, and I think that's explicit in one of the Gospels, maybe Matthew. Just one of the prophets. Which one of the prophets is ultimately demeaning, because is Jesus claiming to simply be a prophet? No. He is indeed the prophet, which is a messianic title given to us by Moses, right? So, not one of the prophets, but the prophet. So John the Baptist is wrong, the prophets are wrong, and then what about Elijah? Where do they get that from? So Elijah is supposed to come, return before Christ as the forerunner of Christ. So this is another way of denying that he is the Christ, that he is Elijah who precedes the Christ. You remember this with John the Baptist. John the Baptist both is and is not the Elijah, (laughs) according to the scriptures. He is in the proper and fullest and theological sense. He's not in the sense that he's Elijah reincarnated or some such thing as that. So this uh, prophecy that that Elijah is supposed to precede the Christ... All right, so they're all three wrong, and they're all three, more importantly, um, wrong in the sense that they reject that Jesus is the Christ. John the Baptist, of course, denied that he was the Christ. So then, 29, now he turns the question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. Peter really shines here. He answers, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Which again is, I've done my best to not explain. (laughs) Because it's better that way. In Mark's gospel, it's better that way. Mark presents Jesus as enigmatic, as an enigma, as a mystery, as mysterious, as sometimes fearful and awesome and wondrous. And if you go explaining everything, you lose that. (laughs) So I think he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Please. Is there any important distinction between Messiah and Christ? No. So the the word uh, Mashiach in Hebrew and Christos in Greek are the two ways, those are the two words we get Messiah from, right? Um, anointed one. So, yeah. yeah. So if Christ is anointed one, then you can see that there are anointed ones um, who act in opposition to God or in opposition to Christ, and those are antichrists. So the point there being that the anointed ones, um, even if you think narrowly in the Old Testament of the kings being the anointed ones, they're Mashiachs, they're Messiahs, they're anointed ones. You think of all the false kings, that's the type of the false Christs, the false Messiahs, the false anointed ones. Um, that then, so you get this idea in the New, in the New Testament of false Christs, And it's not false Jesuses. I mean, it is that, but that's not what's stated. It's false Christ. It's anti-Christ. And that Old Testament type is the the false shepherds of the Old Testament. So just anointed ones is broad, is broad language. And anointed ones is sometimes in the Psalms referred to as the saints as well. The saints are his anointed ones, his chosen ones. Okay, good. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. If I remember correctly, in the Passover feast, is this a new addition that they would say that Elijah was there or something? They had 
Yeah, I don't know when that tradition comes in. It's not, I, it, there's nothing in the scriptures about that, and if it's later, it's suspect. So, it's the best I can. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, isn't that Malachi? I can't remember off the top of my head. I should have looked it up. Um, do you know? I don't know off the top of my head. Does somebody want to Google it quick? <laughs> let me see. Let me, let me see if I can conjure it up really quick. If not, then not. Yeah, thank you. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And there's some insider baseball stuff that's going on a little bit there. I mean, in the sense that, so when Jesus says from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah, which is, a clear, which is an intentional mishearing. Or at least there's a spiritual thing going on. I mean, I don't know. There's either they're either mocking him, and and uh, or there's a there's one of these misunderstandings that is freighted with theological import, like the sleep of the disciples. On the one hand, you know, in the garden. On the one hand, it's just sleep. On the other hand, it's sleep freighted with theological and spiritual significance, right? So that's, uh, there's all kinds of uh, things like that, and uh, particularly in the passion narrative, and that would be one. Okay, so there you have it. Thank you. Uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, right at the end of the Old Testament there. All right, so these are all a rejection that he is, in fact, the Christ. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Christ. He, said, he strictly charges them to tell no one about him. And again, there's lots of reasons and rationales we can kind of conjure up. I just think that it sort of ruins what Mark is trying to do uniquely in his gospel, which is his own unique portrait and revelation of Jesus. All right, at verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders. Son of man is one of those phrases that in and of itself, of course, just on its surface, indicates humanity. What else is it to be a... I mean, if you're the son of a duck, you're a duck. If you're the son of an an elm tree, you're an elm tree. So kind begets like kind. So if you're the son of man, then you're human. But the son of man in, say, the book of Daniel but is a technical title for the Messiah. So when you see the Son of Man, or when you see Jesus using the Son of Man, those who were present with him who were biblically literate, probably most of the Jewish people, um, would have recognized he's claiming a divine title for himself. He's claiming to be the Messiah. So that's kind of the double side of that little name, the Son of Man. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. So all the people who are supposed to know what's going on and who are supposed to be serving God are going to be the very ones who reject him and put him to death. Of course, that's already sort of prefigured in their assertions that he's John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets or anyone other than the Messiah. So he's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now Jesus will repeat this two other times in the gospel. This is the first, and it's pivotal. It's pivotal in the sense that you have the revelation of the cross explicitly, the revelation of his death and resurrection explicitly at this point in the text. All right, well, this sits really well with Peter, doesn't it? 
So verse 32, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Could you imagine? Yeah. (laughs) The first time, but certainly not the last time, a pope has attempted to rebuke Jesus. Yes. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Okay. Yeah, so he rebukes him. But turning and seeing his disciples. You know, there, there are some beautiful little details put in here. I just glossed over one. One beautiful little detail is at the beginning of verse 32. And he said this plainly. Because it's evident enough to us. And occasionally you get this sort of narrative interjection. That sometimes they're having a hard time telling when Jesus is speaking plainly or figuratively or what exactly he's doing, they don't always get it. But here he says it plainly. So that's indicated that there was no you know, sort of poetic, allegorical you know, kinds of flavor to it. It was just stated bluntly, this is what's going to happen. So Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, and then you get this, other great little detail, but turning and seeing his disciples. It kind of has an import just immediately in terms of creating a mental picture. Where where are the other disciples when Peter takes him and rebukes him? (laughs) But it's also got this kind of beautiful thing because of what comes next. So we'll return to this momentarily. Peter said... Um, as he's rebuking him, then he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So through Peter, Satan is at work, and he's at work to deter Jesus from the cross. And that's what I think the ultimate significance is of his turning and seeing his disciples. As John would put it, he loved them and loved them unto the end. So he sees them, recalling that it is for them and that through them, the ends of the earth, that he's come, that he's going to die, that he's going to lay down his life. And now Satan is deterring that, and that's why he speaks with his eyes on those whom he loves. That's why he speaks so firmly. So it's great. It's cliche to say we all feel like Peter, but of course we do. One minute you're getting, the, you're getting it all right. You are the Christ, (laughs) outshining everyone. And the next minute, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there, too, you can tell in Jesus' teaching is this antithesis between God and man, the desires of God and the desires of man. We've been meditating on that theme richly in our preceding class. I just simply want to point it out because it's, this is the way Jesus does his theology. He doesn't clear his throat and say, <clears throat> everyone, I'd like to announce to you that I'm going to teach you the doctrine of original sin. That's not, it's not Jesus' way. That, it's not really any of the biblical author's way, but maybe Paul's closer on that spectrum than Jesus. Look, look how Jesus does it. He just states as a matter of fact and almost in passing that the things of God and the things of man are antithetical which is really the essence of original sin. So Jesus everywhere teaches doctrine. He just does so, so beautifully that you almost don't recognize it. <laughs> All right. So let me pause there and see if you have any reflections. We have Peter's great confession, and then we see that even his great confession is misguided because the Christ whom he believes Jesus to be, is not the Christ who's going to suffer and die on the cross. In his mind, those two things are impossible, that one would be the Christ and that one would suffer rejection at the hands of the leaders and be put to death. You made the comment that uh, it says, Satan, get behind me. So does Satan know that he's there to die? And if so, why didn't he try and prevent it from Pilate and all the others? Yeah, it's a really good question. And there's, there's sort of a multifaceted, multidimensional answer and maybe some mutual exclusivity, depending on how you answer that question. So one would be that 
so it sort of takes Satan out of the equation for a minute. And Jesus is saying if you to Peter in the earshot of others, if you oppose me in my mission to the cross, you are acting in Satan's position, okay? Because this is why I've come, and so you're in immediate opposition to me. If you would spare me from the cross, you're in immediate opposition because I'm going to the cross. That's why I've come. Okay. In that sense, Satan is almost rhetorical because we're not talking about the specific fallen angel, Satan, you know, speaking through Peter or something like that, right? Okay, that's, that's one possibility. Um, and then, then Satan's sort of taken out of the equation or is just generically understood as one who opposes Christ in whatever it is he wants to do. On deeper analysis, the sort of, que- like here's the real fun question and the multifaceted, interesting um, responses that we might give or possibilities we might entertain. And that is, to what extent did Satan want Jesus on the cross or not want Jesus on the cross? That's a broader biblical question. And I don't think that that question in specific is being entertained here. I do really tend to think it's more rhetorical. Um, yeah, I think that's much more my formal answers. I think this tends to be more rhetorical. Do I really think that Jesus is directly addressing Satan here? Like, that would be a way to think about the question. I don't think he is. Could you also say then it would be our sin is really putting him there because he knows our nature and the people that are going to try him. Mm-hmm. They're going to do evil. Yeah, I think and that's, that's just right. part of what's natural for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah, there's one way of harmonizing it that people have tried to do with, I mean, harmonizing this. Like, does Satan want Jesus on the cross or not? Is like, because what do you make of the taunts when Jesus is on the cross to come down from the cross? That resonates with this sort of satanic impulse to come down. And and if you tie that in with the temptations of Satan, which are largely to avoid suffering and avoid the cross, you can paint a, a fairly convincing and compelling narrative that Satan doesn't want Jesus on the cross, that he knows he's going there. So then why does, you know, then Jesus is working in in opposition to Satan to get to the cross. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that, and this was presented to me by a prophet seminary. I've been thinking about this for a long time. (laughs) I really wish I had more to show for it. Um, but he said, you know, so Satan doesn't want him to, to go to the cross, but in the end just hates him so bad that he's fine with it. And it's almost, almost exhibits kind of schizophrenic-like characteristics and just can't decide. On the one hand, doesn't want him to go to the cross because he knows what that will do. But on the other hand, he's got the Son of God in his hands and can do his worse. And that sort of impulsive evil takes over. I don't know. That's less plausible to me. Less and less plausible to me the more I think about it over the years. I mean, but I don't know. It's still, it's still possible, I think. And the other would be to take... So Paul's got this line. I um, can't remember. I think it's in 1 Corinthians, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, shoot, maybe it's from somewhere else. Anyway, if one of you recognizes it, let me know. But he's got this kind of line to paraphrase, where he's talking about the principalities and powers of the world, and if they had known um, that he was the Christ, they would not have put him to death. So the idea there clearly expresses that the powers of darkness are involved in the crucifixion, are masterminding the crucifixion. It's just in so doing, they think they're thwarting Christ, they think they're thwarting God and defeating Christ, but in fact they're being defeated and they're being undone. So what do you make of all that? I mean, I don't know. This is kind of one of the profound biblical mysteries and questions. Is it possible that Satan knows more than the others? Maybe, but that's not likely. Is it possible that they have different takes on what should happen? That could be. We sometimes view evil as if it were all monolithic. It needn't necessarily be. We sometimes view Satan as if like he's the he's the only evil guy with any real intelligence, and the rest are kind of these demons running around. That's a mistake. Uh, the super intelligences of the principalities and powers of darkness are vast and um, 
varied and would be, if not identical to, analogous to the way we have personalities or the way we think and do differently as finite beings. They would exhibit those, those characteristics as well. And could it also be his, his blindness of rage is mm-hmm. okay, also his intelligence because if, if you're looking at King Solomon, he had all kinds of smarts, but he also was dumb Mm-hmm. You know, with his many wise and going things. So it's mm-hmm. Satan the same way that, hey, he's still a creative being, so his brilliance is only limited because mm-hmm. God limits it. So he can't think beyond what he observes because mm-hmm. God won't let him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's one of the options that I presented is that, you know, we sometimes... We sometimes act as though Satan would be monolithic in his thinking and being, but since when is that ever the case of a created <laughs> person or creature? And then likewise, evil. It is. It's First Corinthians two, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, yeah, oh, sorry, that's just a repeat of the same thing. I don't know why it's got it twice there. So that indicates um, that the rulers of this world, the sort of cosmic powers that Paul has in mind, crucified Jesus, thinking that that was the proper course of action for them to take. That was the strategic action for them to take. But in fact, were duped, tricked, or deceived by God into that. Yeah. So that factors into the conversation, too. So I don't know, I've just presented you with a lot of data, some of it contradictory, some of the theory uh, mutually exclusive, like one's obviously right at least on this point and not the others or something like that, or none of them are right. But um, that's kind of the, uh, it's the mystery that the scriptures present to us on that particular question. You'll find different takes in, our, in the hymnody of the church. You'll find different takes sometimes in the sermonizing of individual preachers, obviously, on the question, what did Satan want to crucify Jesus or not? And in what sense did he if he did? Yeah. All right, well, there's lots of places in Scripture like this that are contemplative, and maybe there's a straightforward answer, but it's eluded me. So, nonetheless, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think that this is chiefly rhetorical, that he's saying, Peter, you are acting not as an emissary of me, as of Christ, but as an emissary of Satan when you prevent me from going to the cross. And kind of the Mark's beautiful way of directing the scene as he lets us know that Jesus turns to see his disciples and then follows this rebuke. All right, 34 continues the theme. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his... How did he know that (laughs) at this stage? So this destroys this kind of... I don't, think, I don't know how much popular it is anymore, but this liberal idea that kind of seemed to have come out of the 70s and 80s, that Jesus didn't know he was the Messiah and sort of like had to slowly discover, or Jesus didn't know um, that he was going to be at the cross, and it was just kind of like, well, he sort of knew it during Holy Week. <laughs> like, you know, like he, he, he knew it on Friday morning when they said crucify him. Um, no, he, he obviously knew it a long time ahead. He knew he was the Messiah. Um, all of that is just nonsense. But even at this early stage, he knows it's the cross. So what is, what is left generic, if you will, in verse 31, that he will be killed, is now alluded to in specificity, take up his cross and follow me, verse 34. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So the project of following Christ is rejecting self. What's that a riff on? That's a riff on, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So to follow Christ is to be contrary to yourself. That's original sin. 
being taught from the lips of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Because what does it actually mean to deny yourself? It means to be set on Christ's side over and against your sinful self. And that's really what the act of confession is, what the act of repentance is. It's to align yourself with God against yourself. And to make confession is, in fact, to prosecute yourself. And so where Paul's coming from when he says, if I agree with the law that it is good, if I'm sided with Christ, to use our language here, um, it's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. Like I've identified the sin that dwells within me, and it's my enemy, it's a cancer. And I'm aligned with Christ, so I point out where I see the cancer, and I ask him to heal me of that, to forgive me, of course, but to ultimately to heal me of that. And he sees all the more, but the point being that our wills are aligned as master and disciple. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Those two things are set in antithesis. You can't follow yourself or you're going to reject Christ. You have to deny yourself if you would follow him. And you must take up your cross and follow. So the idea that the way that Christ is presenting is a way of suffering, physically, mentally, spiritually, all of the above, But it's not like, I mean, in one sense, in an ironic sense, it is your best life now. (laughs) Your worst life now would be what Joel Osteen wants for you, you know. Your, Your best life now is to follow Christ in faithfulness, no matter the cost. And whereas he doesn't ask individuals, you know, he doesn't ask, let me put it this way, he doesn't ask all of us to give up everything we possess, but he might ask any one of us at any time. There's any number of ways in which that circumstance could arise, or at least put it on the line. So, uh, you know, when you think of the rich young ruler, he did ask him to put his possessions aside. He doesn't ask that of everyone, but he might ask that of you. You never know. What if it came down to follow me and lose your possessions, follow me and land in prison? So that that question isn't asked of everyone but it may well be asked of you or me. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life, I mean, of course, that just shows the cluelessness of the fallen mind, that this life is all there is, so you have to save that, no matter the cost. Didn't we see it? Didn't we get a nasty taste of that during the whole COVID thing? Anything else can absolutely burn and perish as long as we stay alive at all costs. (laughs) It's terrible. So that's the way of man. Those are the things of man. Self-preservation, staying alive at all costs. Valuing one's life here in its present state as the greatest good. That's an idolatry. And what a sad, pitiable idolatry. I mean, if we could see it objectively... It'd be like some poor miser you know, gripping at rags and broken goods and just like clutching to them with all his might while Christ is like, follow me, and you can literally have everything. <laughs> so that's the idea of whoever would save his life. Our lives here are dirty and dingy and beggarly, and the stuff of this world is the same. Whoever would, whoever would desire that as the summum bonum, the highest good, will end up losing it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's just glorious. There's narrow application to the disciples um, proper and to the pastoral office proper, but I don't really think that's in view here. I do think it tends, because he calls over the whole crowd, I think it tends toward universal experience of Christian discipleship and following the Lord that there is a sense in which we want to lose ourselves, lose our lives for Christ's sake. Live no longer for ourselves, but for him insofar as we're able. All right, 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? An echo of Jesus telling the parable of the man whose biggest problems is get so much wealth he doesn't know how to manage it. So his barn's full, I guess i got to build a bigger barn and then 
God says to him, you fool, this very night your life is required of you. With the same punchline, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So if you take this idea of um, living for yourself, not denying yourself, saving your life, not losing your life, clinging to this world, then take that to its absolute conclusion. What if you were... What if you were Successful in a way that nobody else is successful. What if you, in fact, gained the whole world but lost your soul? Like, weigh that on the scale. How long would you have the whole world for? If by reason of strength, 80 years? And for that, you exchanged eternity? So, of course, Ecclesiastes is a rich, rich meditation on this theme and quite convincing, but it has as its source this wisdom from Christ himself. What can a man give in return for his soul? Can you imagine? I mean, it's kind of a sad and pitiable thing. What people will say at the judgment seat of Christ. Take all my money, it's all yours. (laughs) Yeah. So we have money, we have resources, we have stuff. It's ours, it's a trust, it's stuff we can use, stuff we can use for the sake of others. But boy, it's just stuff. And if you can't get detached from stuff, you've got to think about that because that's, that's part of the discipleship that God calls us to is to be ready at any second to lose stuff and not get all bent out of shape with him. <laughs> to lose stuff because it's just stuff. And then also, um, whatever you cling to, you know, whatever you're not willing to give up, can and will be used against you by the devil or by men. So if you've got something that you really can't lose, that's precisely the leverage point. And boy, that goes deeper than stuff then too, doesn't it? Because that can go children, that can go wife, that can go career, that can go status, that can go reputation. If there's something you're not willing to lose, that can and will be leveraged against you. Part of the beautiful but terrifying freedom in Christ is that you, in order to be faithful to him, you have to be willing to subject everything to him. And that means being willing to lose everything for the sake of following him. And again, this is... We're not all going to be called to these profound, you know, poignant, uh, sort of heart-stopping moments, but you might. You might. And so as his disciple, you want to be prepared because you never know what the Lord will ask of you in particular. All right. And this is the better and blessed and and more beautiful way because do you want to be a slave to stuff and a slave to yourself and a slave to others? Or would you rather be a slave to Christ and God and light and life and wisdom and everything that's true and everything that's eternal? I mean, the choice is easy when you put it that way, isn't it? Okay, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me... So this is the judgment of Christ, like the crisis, the idea of... um, the dividing line. So um, you don't get to be neutral here. It's one or the other. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, There is um, following him and there is being ashamed of him. And there's nothing in between. All right, um, 9-1, this is a bad chapter break. I don't mind a paragraph break because of the narrative clause and he said to them, but to put a chapter break here gives a complete wrong impression This immediately follows on the heels of what just came to pass, as is obvious. Truly, or amen, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, the English doesn't do us many favors here. 
But the idea is not that there's going to be some people who stay alive until Jesus comes a second time. That's just not what's being stated here. What is being stated is that some men will convert, will see the kingdom of God as it comes in its power. So he's so like let me let me give you an example of how this would be cleaned up. And this is more accurate to the original language. So Amen, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God is already come with power. So in view here is the conversion of hearts, not that Jesus is saying, hey guys, I think I'm going to come back before you're all dead. Um, this is uh, there's grammar here to that reading that I gave you to this understanding that I gave you. I don't want to. I don't know. I'll put all put you all to sleep. It's warm. We just ate. It is a really no offense, Vicar. I know you're all into the languages and everything. That's great, but it is dry as toast with no butter. Whew. So. All right, does that help clarify, though? So conversions in view, the, uh, the sort of temporal language of until, um, as if like this hasn't come with power. I mean, that's a, that's a way to just get the meaning and the sense from the overall context. Has Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come? Of course. The kingdom of heaven has arrived in him. The reign of heaven has arrived in him. He's the true king. And so that's the kingdom and reign of God. And has it come in power? Well, he's casting out demons. So the entire demonic host is shaking in its boots. He's stilling storms on the sea. So nature is subject to him. I don't know. Does that sound like power to you? Having power over the whole demonic and spiritual sphere? Having power over the whole cosmic uh, sphere and earth and the the wind and the waves i think so it all sounds like the kingdom of god has already come in power so that even contextually negates the until and you see what's in view here is jesus saying um, that there are some standing here who will see the kingdom before they die so who will be converted that's generally velstake um, and that's and I agree with it. I, I agree with it one hundred percent in that regard. Is that the same with the woman at the well? Because he's proclaiming the same thing with, to her. Because he's there. It is the kingdom. Just like you know, you call a cathedral a cathedral because the bishop is there. So would you say the oh, same man, thing? I got lo- I'm so sorry. I got lost thinking about what I was going to say next. Can <laughs> pray again? Okay. So that he's he told the woman at the well. Yeah. Because she was saying, hey, we have to go to Jerusalem. And he says, no, that was the case because it came through the Jews, but now it isn't because you see me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, right. So he tells her that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm, I'm saying. Wherever he is, that yeah. is his glory and his kingdom. Right. Because yeah. It's a great point. Yeah. yeah no, no longer on Gerizim or Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. Yeah. Now, if you want to put a fine point on this, and I think Vels kind of wants to do this, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not opposed to this. If you want to put a fine point, so truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has already come with power. I mean, I, I'm content to just leave that generic conversion, understanding that right in front of them is the Christ, and maybe even understanding that, spe- that the specific act of his power within the kingdom of God is laying down his life. That's kind of where I'm interested in. But if you wanted to pinpoint this, then you kind of have this debate of, is he talking about what immediately follows, the transfiguration? Vels kind of wants to, wants to say he does have some specific event in mind where they are going to see with their physical eyes, as opposed to like being converted, they're going to see with their physical eyes the kingdom of God come in power. And so for Vels, he just says, well, what follows on that is the transfiguration. So that's probably what Jesus has in mind. I, I, again, I don't care enough to like, argue with that. Fine. Fine. I just, I'm, not, I'm not fully convinced in my own mind that we have to be that specific about it or that that's in particular what Jesus has in mind. But just giving you all the possibilities here. All right, so then... Uh, 
Verse 2, and after six days... Let me see if the study note does anything with that. I forgot to look in Vels. I don't think it does. So if it's after six days, that would make it the seventh day. We don't really have any other chronology marker, but it does sort of heighten it that it would be after six days, so inferring that it's on the seventh day that transfiguration happens. I don't know. And it's interesting to tie in because, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but you probably already know the story. So you can't tell anybody about these things. Does he do it explicitly here? Yeah, you can't do any. So you have the resurrection here. And the early church fathers, the resurrection day as the eighth day is a really big deal. And um, is arguably why they moved the Sabbath. It's the eighth day. Well, be that as it may, you've got this. So it's possible to read this that after six days, then you've got the seventh day being alluded to as transfiguration. And then he mentions the eighth day as the day of the revelation of these things, the day in quotations, of his resurrection. Let's look at that. With, that. with those things in mind, let's look at that. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So like metamorphosis is uh, the language there. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one no one on earth could bleach them. Isn't that great? Just mixing the transcendent and the mundane. Fantastic. One of those guys thought that. He thought that and he told Mark and Mark wrote that down. And there appeared... Okay, so we're just, we just have his clothes here in Mark's account. In other accounts, you have his face shining. I don't see that here. His face shining as the sun. But here it's focused on his clothing. Transfigured before them, clothes, radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You know, the clothing of Jesus is one of these overarching kind of threads woven through the Gospels. Because if you follow his clothes here that are radiant, obviously those are the clothes that are stripped off him and literally end up clothing on account of their casting of lots, one of the men who crucified him. But all of that foreshowing how we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and how Paul says that in baptism we put on or are clothed with Christ. So if you follow his clothes, <laughs> as it were, you also get the heavenly laundry, where the scarlet of our sins and the scarlet of his blood somehow make for white robes. Okay. There's the gospel for those of you domestically inclined. Got bleach and laundry and clothes. Okay. For, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, it's great, because we just had... Elijah mentioned that some think he's Elijah. In one of the prophets, behind that is kind of Moses, who's the prophet par excellence, and prophesies of the prophet who is to come, who's, of course, Jesus. But Elijah and Moses both show up here. A lot of debate as to the nature of all of this. I don't know how helpful or fruitful it is to think about it. It is curious, though, that um, Elijah is... uh, Obviously, his body's not buried because he ascends into heaven with the chariot. Moses' body is buried, but by God, and he knows only. And then in the book of Jude, you have this dispute between Satan and the archangel Michael over the body of Moses. Were they, was Michael sent to go get it for the transfiguration? Maybe that's going too far. Who knows? I don't know. I entertain it. It's possible. God's like, uh, we're going to need that. 
Okay, at any rate, Elijah and Moses are there, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, tabernacles. So like the Feast of Booths is like, like Jesus has come, the harvest, is, or the, yeah, like the Christ has come, the harvest is in. This is the inauguration of the eschatological kingdom. So Peter's not wrong here, strictly speaking. And he's certainly not doing this thing of like, okay, well, since we're all here, let's go camping, or maybe we can just live up here forever. What, he's, what he thinks he's recognizing is the, is the revelation of Christ in his glory, the return of the saints, just the two leaders here, Elijah and Moses, and he thinks this is it. The kingdom of heaven has come on earth, so let's set up our tabernacles because this is how it's going to be forever. So let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Yeah, I imagine so. And a cloud overshadowed them. Now, is that just a... Is that just like a a weather update? What do you think? What do you associate the cloud with biblically? The tabernacle and the temple. Yeah, the tabernacle. So look, we've got tents, we've got tabernacle. I mean, Peter's not off. He's off by degree. And it's clear he doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, yeah, as one of the gospel writers plainly tell us. But his impulses aren't wrong. Yeah. His impulses aren't wrong. But in the other one, it said they were sleeping because... This makes it sound like they didn't have much of a conversation because Peter's always butting in, <laughs> and and I'm thinking I'm I don't thinking know. It's, they, it's Spartan. It's Spartan. What we're told. Yeah, because I'm thinking they're talking with him, so I'm assuming they had some dialogue. So it was a little more than well two minutes before Peter pops in, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they are talking. I don't know what they're... T- well, we don't know what they're talking about here. The only indication we're giving, I think in Luke's account, we're told that they're talking about Jesus' exodus. And that's the actual language that's used, which really flavors the whole thing. Again, kind of takes in that tabernacle and cloud theme, but the idea that Jesus is going to lead the people out of bondage. So Moses led them out of bondage to Pharaoh. We're being led out of bondage to Satan, just as, just as Pharaoh was smashed, Satan's going to be smashed. He's leading us through the waters, through baptism, into the promised land. You know, that kind of thing. So you've got this whole motif of Jesus' exodus, which reigns supreme. Luke makes that explicit. He's the only one, too. Otherwise, it's just left generic, I think, by Matthew and Mark. I mean, certainly Mark. I think Matthew also, though. We don't know, like, based on their accounts, we don't know any of the content of the conversation. Because yeah, also, when you talk about the cloud, they can't see in the cloud, because in the tabernacle and the temple, it was so, it was dark, even on Mount Sinai, that they couldn't do anything. They can't see their hand in front of their face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it's almost like God's saying, hey, Peter, just shut up for once and just listen. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I can't remember if it's in Luke, but it's like God practically interrupts Peter. I don't know that you necessarily get that sense here. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. So, big brain question, who's speaking? Yeah, the father. So you've got the Father and the Son. Okay, this is my beloved Son. The voice from the cloud um, is the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Which may be a polite way of like... Yeah, it might be a polite way of doing that. I mean, I'll do that with my kiddos sometimes. Not that they ever speak out of turn, but I'll, you know, <laughs> listen to your mother, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, suddenly looking around, they, uh, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only, and that's kind of a preacher's favorite line. I've heard, I've heard umpteen sermons. When that comes up in the lectionary vicar, you can't do it. They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only, so set our eyes on Jesus only. 
It's true, it's fine. There's just more to it than that, I think. All right. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, please, go ahead. Moses and Elijah were both taken up to heaven, right? Well, Moses died and was buried, yeah. Mm -hmm. But the Lord took his body, the Lord buried his body where no one else knows. How are they coming back? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's been too long since I've researched this. I don't remember. It's somewhere rattling around in the dusty catacombs of my brain. But I, and I can't recall. Luther and or some other authorities, I just can't recall, um, assert that, this is, that they are both in their bodies. So you, I mean, broadly speaking, you can see this whole thing as a vision, in which case whether they're in their bodies or not doesn't matter. You can see them inhabiting, you can see... Uh, Elijah in his body, but his body glorified? How does that work? That creates a bunch of difficulties. Um, Moses in a spiritual body, which doesn't create a bunch of difficulties, but you just sort of have this asymmetry, and he sure appears to be physical. So um, then your third, op- your third option is to have them in their bodies, just both of them, and um, not necessarily glorified in any final state, but just in the state in which Elijah was assumed in whatever state in which he exists. And then the same would be true with Moses. And it does tie up that loose end of why are they contending over the body of Moses. I favor that. I lean toward that. But again, I don't know. These are kinds of questions that we'd love to know the answer to, but to what end? You know, it's Obviously, if it was that important, Jesus would have spelled it all out for us. Okay. Yeah. So that's the best I can do there. I tend toward thinking that they're, they're there corporeally. All right, let's see if we can just round this out in the last couple minutes and be done with this episode. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Lots of different explanations for why that might be the case, and some of them more plausible than others. I don't know. I just don't care. Because it's more important that it be enigmatic and it be the way the Lord wants it to be, and that we not know all the ins and outs of things we're not given to know. So I hope that doesn't sound like a cop-out. I really do believe that that's faithful to the intention of the author and faithful to the intention of the Holy Spirit, ultimately. Okay, uh, 10, yeah, 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. (laughs) Which is great. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Aha, we know. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man? that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Okay, so this is the sense in which, I mean, you have this little biblical mystery, this little biblical puzzle. In what sense is John Elijah, and in what sense is he not Elijah? Here's the affirmative statement that he is Elijah. Elijah comes first to restore all things. Okay, that's the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins that John gives. That's the making the crooked paths straight, the highway for our God. All those quotations of Isaiah that end up in the early parts of the gospel. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So he's challenging them like, this is what the scriptures say. And then the connection. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Of whom else could he be speaking but John? And John is imprisoned and beheaded, and in this sense is the true forerunner of Christ. Because by the shedding of his blood, he testifies, even in his death, who Christ is and who, what he's come to do. That's how I read this. I think there's maybe an, there may be a different way to take it, but I think that that's how I take it. I didn't even look at the study notes. What do they say? 12. John the Baptist prepared for Jesus' arrival, referred to Jesus' betrayal, trial, beatings, crucifixion. He has come. Like Elijah, who suffered the wickedness of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, John had to suffer under Herod and Herodias. Yeah, so it's friendly. 
Good. It's always nice to agree with the study Bible. <laughs> All right, so you can never do the transfiguration justice. This is, you can never do this whole section of scripture justice. It's so wonderful. It's so fantastic. I, I mean, there's just so many things to become absorbed with and to worship and glorify and take note of, just meditate on. But that's all the time we have. So next, uh, next week we'll pick up then right after the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus healing a boy with an unclean spirit. The Lord be with you.